KPBS On Demand is supported by MaraCal Design and Remodeling, helping homeowners with their home remodeling needs. From ADUs to custom kitchen remodels and room additions, MaraCal Design and Remodeling designs and builds your dream home. Learn more at trustyourhometous.com. Welcome back to another edition of listener-supported KPBS Cinema Junkie podcast. I'm Beth Accomando. Okay, you all know about the final girl in horror, right? That feisty, possibly virginal heroine who's the last one left standing after some serial killer goes on a rampage. But are you familiar with the final boy? You've got the body. I've got the brain. The final boy screamed his way into pop culture existence in 1985 with Nightmare on Elm Street 2, Freddy's Revenge, the sequel to Wes Craven's wildly successful 1984 film. Film Out San Diego's LGBT Film Festival has decided to celebrate this Halloween season with a gay horror double bill of Nightmare on Elm Street 2 and Hellbent. And that prompted me to think about Final Boys. Daniel Ferrans and Andrew Cash explored the notion of the Final Boy in their epic and fabulous documentary, Never Sleep Again, The Elm Street Legacy. Here's a montage of interviews, beginning with Joel Swasson, line producer on Elm Street 2. Then we hear from actors Robert England, Freddy Krueger himself, and Mark Patton, the final boy. Almost all the horror films of the 80s featured women as the protagonist, and it's not hard to understand why. They were easier to portray as victims. It just made the sexual threat and the chemistry richer. But they, I, I think they had to have made Nightmare on Elm Street Part Two to discover that. Because when you suddenly cast your male lead in the victim role, and then you have him scream like a girl for 90 minutes, uh, you're going to have some people going, well, you know, that's not the manliest performance I've ever seen. In fact, I may be the first male scream queen. Elm Street 2 has been called the gayest horror film of all time and the homo nightmare on Elm Street. Here's another montage of voices from the Never Sleep Again documentary, beginning with Elm Street 2 director Jack Shoulder, that provides a little backstory to how all this unfolded. I simply did not have the self-awareness to realize that any of this might be interpreted as, as gay. And I actually don't think that originally Jesse was written as a gay character. I think it's something that happened along the line by serendipity. I also had not the slightest idea that one of my lead actors was gay. The fact that Mark Patton was an openly gay actor, I don't think had been uh, revealed at that time yet. We made Nightmare 2 absolutely clueless that it had any gay overtones whatsoever. I'm absolutely sure there's not one moment that I remember that it was discussed. I never saw it. I didn't get it. When I was shooting, I had no notion that this was happening, although I didn't get a blowjob on the set. That's what you mean. But looking back, it was so gay. It was amazing. If you're called the homo nightmare on Elm Street on the net by a million prepubescent boys, then, then a bunch of grown men had to know what they're doing. All I can say is we were all incredibly naive or all incredibly latently gay. I'm not sure which. 
It might have gone unnoticed by mainstream straight audiences, but it was readily apparent to Blake Mawson. He's part of a new wave of gay filmmakers working in the horror genre. His film, Piotr 495, was showcased earlier this year at Film Out San Diego. He says gay horror is finally coming into its own. It's been a long time in the making for sure. I mean, there's a lot of films from the 80s, Nightmare on Elm Street 2 in particular, which was just so gay. And you watch it now and it's just like, it's amazing how no no one, it just kind of went under the radar for mainstream audiences and no one really picked it up, you know? Something is trying to get inside my body. Yeah, and she's female and she's waiting for you in the cabana and you want to sleep with me. Elm Street 2 writer David Chaskin said it was all meant to be subtext. Mawson points out that horror provides the perfect genre to do just that. Absolutely. You know, it allows you to talk about things in a subversive way and express things without the confines of reality, express them in an explosive, colorful, vibrant way and make people think and also put people in the shoes of the people that this is actually happening to and terrify them so that maybe the audience will understand that this is something that is awful and it is terrifying and kind of see it firsthand that way. I'm so scared. Jesse, what are you talking about? He's inside me. I'm scared. Jesse, who is doing this to you? Fred Krueger. He's inside me and he wants to take me again. Horror can be an incredible vehicle to talk about things that are really happening in the world. Not everything is puppy dogs and daisies all the time, and there is a lot of nitty-gritty out there that's really happening, and I think horror has the guts to talk about it and address things in a very raw and like visceral way. And I think there is horror for everyone. I believe that as well. I, I think there's it's such a broad broad genre and there's so many different types of horror you know there's camp if if you if you're not a fan of slashers and gore you know there's there's creature films there's uh psychedelic horror like there's there's a, a huge spectrum to explore so i'd like to believe that people can find something that they like within it dominic haxton also had his short tonight it's you showcased in film out's first ever horror block he puts this new wave of gay horror into a context. I think it's great. I think gay horror is a huge, you know, it's a huge subgenre that is only growing. And there's a huge interest in horror films from LGBT audiences. More recently, we're seeing more um, examples of just overtly queer horror films, whereas before, I think it was more coded. Like when you had James Whale, you know, Frankenstein films and goes back to interview with a vampire and growing up gay, you know, you're, you identify with being the other, with being alienated, with being kind of the outcast. So, and that's definitely a, a theme, common theme in horror films. It's the, the, the monsters and the villains usually are that character. So we identify to a certain extent to horror films because of that. Mawson agrees. And I think the just the idea of feeling um, ostracized or cursed or like you're being chased by angry townspeople with burning torches, like I think that a lot of gay people can relate to that in a lot of ways. 
If Elm Street 2 served up gay subtext, Hellbent, which arrived almost a decade later, pushed that subtext into the forefront to deliver what's been called the first gay slasher film. There wasn't just a final boy or boys, but a serial killer who might also be gay and a cast of characters that was predominantly gay. That film inspired Jesse Klein. His short film Demons was also part of Film Out's gay horror block back in June. Yeah, you know, that's so funny you mentioned Hellbank. That's literally like the only gay feature-length horror film that I've ever seen, <laughs> horror. <laughs> you know, that's like our only represented film, and uh, that's actually what inspired me to kind of go down that path. This is where it happened. Two guys were murdered on this spot. Their heads were cut off so cleanly. The tubes... They weren't crushed at all. They were wide open. Haxton addressed the issue of having a film where the killer and the victims might all be gay. Yeah, I mean, I see where that comes from, because anytime when you have a certain group that's underrepresented in film and media, when you do see a representation of them, and it is, and it is in a negative way, or they're depicted as the villain or the monster, then you get a, a huge, you know, backlash. Like you saw it with a lot of films like Signs of the Lambs where the serial killer was transgender and Basic Instinct when the, you know, the girlfriend who was lesbian and she ends up getting killed. And I don't think either of those films and, you know, a lot of other films are at fault for that. I think it's just, how people react to things when they don't see them often. And I think the more representations of queer characters, the the less, I guess, reactive people will be to seeing them as villains. And I think it's important, too, that we have stories that queer characters can be the villain and they can be the victims. But And it's not viewed as like a... It's not viewed as a negative thing, like we're, like the filmmaker sending a negative message. Which is why in his film, he plays with those ideas and twists them around. Yeah, the, the character who you think is being victimized is actually the one that you should be afraid of. And it was my goal to kind of subvert that expectation. And I think it's important, too, that we don't, you know, you have these characters who aren't just the ones who are getting... You know, at least they they kind of they they have power. You know, and even if it's a dark power, they still they're not the ones who are being defeated. Michael McQuiggan is the programmer for Film Out. He programmed Hellbent at his first Film Out festival. Now he's pairing Hellbent with Nightmare on Elm Street two for what he's calling a gay horror Halloween double bill on October eighteenth. I asked him what the significance of Hellbent was for him. Hellbent was the first gay slasher film to be released, I think back in 2004. And we actually programmed it back in 2004 when we retransitioned back to Film Out. And it was really exciting and invigorating, and the audience was really into it. We sold it out. I mean, we screened it at MOPA. It did really well. And, you know, I thought, it's been a while. There's a new generation out there now, so let's bring it back and show a double feature. 
Now, this past film out, you had a block of horror shorts, and a few of those filmmakers talked about Hellbent as being a film that was kind of significant for them. So was programming that something you were proud of and something that was satisfying for you as a horror fan? When I programmed it the first time, I was really excited because it was the, I'd never seen anything like it. And at the time, it was like kind of all the rage for um, you know LGBT film festivals, whether it was uh, US or worldwide. It was kind of the go-to movie. You know, I hadn't seen it until I had, it was sent a screener, and I was so excited. I liked it even as a screener, so when we saw it with an audience, it was even more thrilling. It was really intense, and it was fun. It's, you know, even though it's gory, it's graphic, it's funny, it's a thrill ride, which should definitely be seen with an audience. Now, a film like this, it has a serial killer whose sexual orientation may be sort of ambiguous and the victims are gay. Did that raise any issues when you screened it? Was it something that some people felt had any kind of homophobic overtones or did it raise any kind of concerns or was it something that was just like it's about time that you know, a gay filmmaker got to make a horror film like this. I think it's about time a gay filmmaker got to make a horror film like this. Who cares? I mean, if the killer is gay or not gay, and if he's killing only gays, big deal. Can't gays get killed in horror movies? I mean, you have them, the, the gays in the random horror movies where, like, the, the, the gay is, is, like, you know, stereotypical, killed off right away. And in this one, they're all gay and they're all killed off. Well, for the most part, they're all killed off. He's got a fucking knife, the kinky bastard. You are deranged, sir, and I love it. Was that all you got? Give us some more. Joey. As your knife serrated, huh? You're making me hot, big daddy. Oh, yeah, you guys are sick. <laughs> you want to see some? Come on, big boy. You want to play? Now, for the Hellbent screening you're having now for this encore screening, you are getting the director, Paul Etheridge, to come down for a Q&A, correct? Yeah, we're, ex- we're super excited. He's going to come down, introduce the film, and then do a Q&A in between the two screenings. So we're excited to see what his thoughts are uh, seeing it again 14 years later versus when it first came out when he, when, when he did the festival circuit and to kind of revisit it to see what his thoughts are and see what his thoughts on horror were then and um, are now and how that's impacted his career. And as somebody who's been programming LGBT Film Festival, how have you seen kind of trends in gay horror? Is it something that is kind of coming into its own now, or is it something that has been there all along and just not very well, that it hasn't really gotten out there that much? I mean, what what do you see as kind of the the trend or the arc for this? Well, I wish there were more. Um, I think this the past two years we've we, we've had more submissions than we have over in the past you know decade or so. So I'm hoping these younger filmmakers that are looking at films like Hellbent and Elm Street Two and Bite Marks and um, yeah, I think it's about time. I mean, it's different than the usual programming when you have you know these heavy duty dramas or, or rom coms or um, specific documentaries. I think there's an audience for this. Uh, type of genre film that should be explored because the bottom line is they're fun, they're entertaining, and they make money. Now you are pairing this up with a big franchise film, which is the Nightmare on Elm Street series, and in particular this is Nightmare on Elm Street Part 2, which has come to be known as kind of like the gay nightmare film. What kind of fed into this kind of cult following that it got and it's labeled for that? Well, it's interesting because when I first saw the film, I don't think 30 years ago, back in the 80s, I didn't even, I mean, I kind of got some of the uh, 
the the innuendo, but I wasn't really thinking of it as a gay horror. And then over the years, it, it you know it it was kind of like the bastard child of the Elm Street series, but all of a sudden it started growing in popularity with um, with gay audiences. And then I think I read somewhere recently, or I, I don't know when, but that the writers specifically had included all these innuendos and scenes that could be taken either way. But when you see it now, especially with a gay audience, you can't believe that this is what's happening. And, well, first of all, to see this with an audience, it's, I mean, you miss so much dialogue because the audience is like, it's it's erupting in laughter and you're like, oh yeah, oh no, yeah, oh, I get it. I, I hear that. I know what this is. I know where they're going. Um, and so... It's constant through the whole film. How much longer do you think he's going to keep us out here? It could be all night. The guy gets his rocks off like this. Hangs around queer S&M joints downtown. He likes pretty boys like you. Get out of here. It's like rapid, nonstop, in-your-face gayness. So it just, it's, um, it's a fun film to see. You know, it's it. You know, it's not the best Elm Street out there, but it definitely has an audience. So we're glad to be screening it finally. I've been waiting to screen it for a few years. I just never knew what to pair it with. So you know, my my tradition at Film Out is to try and schedule a double feature every October. So I thought, well, let's just do that this time. And that's what happened. The lead actor who's in that is Mark Patton, and he's been described as instead of being the final girl, he's the final boy. I'm fine with that. What if he wants to be called girl or boy? It's up to him. Hey, I don't mind having a final, you know, how about a final gay boy? But there, you know, there are so many different um, uh, suggestive lines and um, kind of like, it's really, it kind of had a sexual vibe. But, you know, back then, 30 years ago, I, I just didn't pick up in as many as you do now, especially when you watch it with, a, with an audience. It's really in your face funny. They were up to something back in the day. I don't know if the director, I think, I don't think the director was kind of in on the joke. I think it was mostly the writers who kind of, and Mark, I think Mark Patton and Robert England, I think they were both kind of in on the joke, but I don't think the director was. And were there any other big franchise films like that that ever kind of tackled something like that or that ever tapped into gay themes or a gay audience like that? I'm trying to think of the big franchise, like definitely not Halloween or Friday the 13th or Saw or any of those, Texas Chainsaw, any of those. Mm, no, I think Elm Street's the only one that's done it, subliminally at least anyway. I can't think of any major franchise genre films that have kind of gone this route, no. So we need more. Or maybe there are some out there that we just haven't discovered yet. All right, well, thank you very much, and I look forward to the horror double feature coming up. Yes, please spread the word. We want a full house. It's fun to scream and laugh with a crowd full of 250 people. That was Film Out programmer Michael McQuiggan. He's screening Hellbent and Nightmare on Elm Street 2 on October 18th. He's also bringing Hellbent director Paul Etheridge in to hold a Q&A with the audience. To get you primed for that interview, or in case you're not in San Diego to enjoy it, here's my interview with Etheridge from earlier this year. He reflected back on making the first gay slasher film and how that affected his career. The one night of the year, Halloween, when you get to indulge your most twisted fantasy. Flaming penis. You got three right here. Don't swallow your hooks. Life is meant for living. I'm not a slasher fan or I wasn't growing up. So that was the furthest type of film I wanted to make. (laughs) 
But uh, I was working with a production company and had for a couple of years as a post supervisor and, you know, various things around the office, helping the, you know, the films get made. And I was walking down the hallway one day and our head producer jumped out and said and dragged me into a pitch session. And there were two money guys who wanted to make a gay horror film. They said, what do you got? Uh, I, we bonded over um, a couple of uh, films from the 1960s um, that we're both familiar with, uh, Black Orpheus being uh, chief among them. And they really liked that idea of a killer at some kind of crazy Halloween festival. Any plans tonight? I'm going to the carnival with a few friends. I'm guessing you heard about the boys murdered last night. The homosexuals. Yeah. You didn't know them, did you? I didn't know. Our community liaison asked us to help get these out around the neighborhood for tonight. I know your work here hasn't been everything you wanted. I wouldn't normally ask you to do this, but uh, everyone's tied up with the carnival. I could use your help. Can I wear my dad's uniform? It's Halloween. Yeah. Then they sent me off to write the script, and I struggled with that thing. <laughs> I'd never written a script, a script before. <laughs> when you were working on that, did you feel that you were breaking new ground or doing anything that was different from what had been done before? What I was chiefly aware of is that in slasher films, the victims, the young people, are punished for having sex. And... You know, that's kind of this part of the titillation, and I felt very strongly that that should not be something I drag into Hellbent, and I, I danced a lot around that. So that was really my main focus, is I didn't want to demonize gay sex or have people, you know, in the audience cheering because, you know, sexually active guys were being killed. In this day and age, uh, had I to do it again, I probably would have changed it up. And, you know, I think it's more permissible to, you know, more acceptable for gay guys to be seen having sex, whereas at the time, not so much. And this was made in 2004. So what kind of was the industry like in terms of someone wanting to make a gay slasher film like this? I mean, you said you had a company that wanted to make it, but was this something yeah. that was considered a risky gamble or something? Definitely. That yeah, definitely. Um, this was before the red camera came out. So making a film like this was very low budget and technically challenging to make because the, uh, the technical resources just weren't there yet. Um, now with the red camera, you know, has a great picture and it's accessible to everybody. It just wasn't that way at the time. So, you know, Hellbent had a tiny budget. I'm not even really sure what the final is, but it's, you know, half a million or less. The producers were, you know, straight white men. Honestly, I don't know why they wanted to make something gay. They never told me that, but they were very sensitive about, you know, the subject matter. I had to make uh, revisions to the scripts to make sure that nothing was going to be ruffled in the audience. It's going to um, uh, yeah, it was challenging. And also getting actors. <laughs> that was a challenge. The other 
thing that seems challenging, and this seems to be the case whenever you're dealing with a group of people who are underrepresented in the mainstream media, mm-hmm. is you get a pushback because I've seen this with women who do horror and want to depict like a female killer or a female serial killer. And the pushback right. is, oh, you should be ashamed of yourself for not depicting women in a better light. And your killer, if I remember, it's been over a decade since I saw your film, but if I remember right, it's like the sexual identity of the killer or his sexual orientation was not entirely clear. And you're, th- there was this sense of you right. weren't sure if he was homophobic or if he was you know, deliberately targeting gays. So I'm just curious if you had any kind of pushback or feeling that you you met with criticism for like, hey, it's you, you shouldn't be depicting gays in any kind of a negative light. Sure. Yeah. I mean, there's there's plenty of criticism um, all over the board. You know, it wasn't gay enough. It was too gay. It was, you know, how dare you, you know, give the enemy any sort of fodder to use against us, you know, all of that. That's expected, I guess. I'm trying to remember if there's anything really specific. It wasn't very upsetting. I mean, there were plenty of legitimate complaints, too. (laughs) But yes, absolutely. Film Out is going to be showing a collection of short horror films in their first gay horror block. And what's interesting is that a number of those have the gay characters as the killer or as the the character that is meant to be scary or threatening hmm. and not in a negative light. I mean, the killers are kind of like the main characters that you are sympathetic to. and <laughs> They're justified in their killings. <laughs> these horror films seem to be taking kind of an interesting look at gay issues in in the sense of they're they're not afraid to depict characters who might not be role models mm-hmm. and they also seem to be taking an interesting way of pushing back at a lot of the stereotypes and prejudices that they may be experiencing as filmmakers right. or as people. So it, it, horror is always an interesting genre I feel for dealing with kind of social issues and Absolutely. It gives you a, a, a lot of leeway to really push some boundaries. I think that's awesome that the filmmakers are feeling confident in portraying their gay characters that way. Like I said, if I were to do Hellbent again now, I, I would approach it differently. At the time, so many of the gay representations in horror films were of killers. And because they were psychotic or twisted or you know somehow broken... And I was very sensitive about that. And that's great that they are, you know, these new filmmakers are able to let us be more, more nuanced, I guess, you know, inhabit more of the, the roles. And huh, I'm, I'm very curious about it. Well, I've always felt, too, that with underrepresented groups that for me, like for seeing women characters on screen, the goal for me has never been like, oh, there should be more positive representations. I always uh-huh. felt like there should just be more representation so you can yeah. have variety and not feel that because there's only one film with a female director or one film with a strong female character, like that that one has the burden of... Yeah. Oh, I agree. I agree with that. That Yeah, if you're sort of the only one, then all eyes turn to, you know, the characters that you're creating and those have to, 
yeah, represent everybody. <laughs> There's not enough, there aren't enough voices. Did you look to any other films? Did you feel any other films were an influence on you when you were making Hellbent? Sure. Yeah, absolutely. I watched Halloween a lot, partly because one of my producers was heavily involved in the original Halloween. So I know that that was sort of playing up to what he was familiar and comfortable with, especially since that had made some money. (laughs) I also looked at films like, just to help influence my visual style, films like uh, the original Invaders from Mars, because I knew I wasn't going to have a lot of money, so but I wanted to have a look. Let's see, what else did I watch a lot of? Um, probably a lot of Brian De Palma. It's Hollywood, I mean, yeah, it's West Hollywood during Halloween, which yes. is, you mentioned that you, it, you wanted it to be during some big crazy event. Yeah. We chose the West Hollywood Festival probably in the first meeting, um, in that first pitch session. The idea was there was this, you know, people in masks and costumes, and nobody knew who the killer was. It was going to be very colorful and a lot of pageantry, that kind of thing. Just to, I mean, in part to help separate it from the Halloween series and a lot of the films that are set in Halloween. We wanted to really embrace the dressing up and the, you know, the kind of the bacchanal element. Hey, I like your costume. You work out, right? I can tell. You play any sports? What gym do you go to? Well, you've got enough candy already? You couldn't use a little more? I don't always look like this, you know. You superficial faggot. It's Halloween, Jesus. And we shot for two years at the actual West Hollywood um, parade, which was interesting. <laughs> I was going to say, how difficult was that to do? It was, it was very challenging. You know, in part, there's the technical stuff. You know, you're having to get photo releases from people that you're filming and avoiding you know, costumes that are too topical. We shot right after 9-11 on our first, uh, that's before we even had a script. We just went out and shot a bunch of footage. And of course, we had to avoid anything that pinpointed 9-11 first responders or whatever. But also there's there's the the elements of, oh, everyone in the crew is getting drunk. (laughs) Everyone in the crowd is getting drunk. (laughs) Lots of drag queens staggering up to the cameras and vomiting. That kind of thing. A lot of of good B-roll there. How did you decide on the direction that you did want to take that script and and the story you did want to tell? That was a a real process. Like I mentioned before, I, I wasn't a fan of slasher films. I'm actually made pretty queasy by people getting killed, which is funny because I love horror. You know, initially I was like, there will be no blood in my movie. <laughs> and of course, it's actually pretty bloody. And I wrote a number of versions of Hellbent before it became anything like what it is. And they were kind of awful and gruesome. And I was so unsettled by them. I mean, a lot of cannibalism and, you know, the handsome guy, keep, you know, uh, who's, the, who's the, the gay killer who was hot and kept, you know, dr- drilled into people's heads and oh, what's that yeah. fellow's name? Was it Jeffrey Dahmer? 
Jeffrey Dahmer, yeah, just those sorts of elements. And I'm like, I can't live with this story for as long as I need to make a movie. <laughs> you know, my kind of kinder, gentler sensibilities started taking over. And I'm like, you know what? This is going to be a gay romance. They're just going to have this killer obstacle. <laughs> so that's kind of how I focused on it. And then once I got into it and kind of broke the, the ground on the story that is hellbent, I started embracing the killer more and the violence and understood how, how fun it could be. It was uh, definitely an evolution for me. Describe your killer because he he is masked. And so describe how you wanted him to come across in the film and look. I wanted him to be very sexy and appealing and eye-catching. We actually cast an Abercrombie Fitch model in that role. I think the, the devil is just such an, a distinctive silhouette. That's what I focused on. You know, that I, could, I knew I would be backlighting him a lot. And the horns were still were threatening, yet still kind of sensual. That, I liked that image. I did put him in shoes that were had different size heels so that he would walk with a, a kind of a funny crookedness. But I, I cut around that pretty much <laughs> because it just did not work. He looked really pretty ridiculous when he was moving around. That is, that's something that you kind of discover on set. But I did want his, his sexuality to be nebulous. Like you weren't entirely sure what what was motivating him you know my thought was that this was a celebration for him as well you know this was his bacchanal his way of expressing it and you know everybody was fair game the this you know this quartet of guys just happened to be the ones to attract his attention because of their encounter in the park and then it became you know the game of stalking i never saw him as like an angry guy just as a someone who has a different sort of lust. And he didn't really have the kind of boogeyman supernatural elements. Not quite, no. I mean, we he is still alive at the end after being shot in the head. So there's that bit. But, it, you know, it wasn't. Uh, I never thought of him as being something supernatural. And do you remember how the film was greeted by gay audiences? Was it embraced by them or? Some, yeah, yeah. Uh, you know, I think people had fun. I don't know. My, you know, to be honest, my my relationship with the film at that point, you know, it's my first film, and I had a lot of emotional rawness <laughs> at that point. So I'm trying to remember how other people reacted to it. I definitely still get people writing fan mail or coming up to me in bars saying, oh, my God, I loved your movie. I watch it every year. We make it a ritual, and I definitely appreciate that. There were plenty of, you know, gay crowds who, or people in the gay crowds who did not respond well to it. But there you go. I guess that's just, you know, that's just how it goes. And do you feel that making that as your first film, did that kind of color or change, do you feel, the way your career went or how you ended up in the industry? Yeah, I do. I'm very proud of it. It's the most personal thing I've created. Um, there's just, there's a lot of me wrapped up in that, a lot of my own experience. And I'm, you know, grateful for the opportunity, all of that. I do feel that what I 
expected to get out of the film never materialized. It was very hard for me to get another directing job after that, or, you know, that's mainstream, you know, agents and all of that. It just, I didn't really know what to do with it. You know, it wasn't, it was rough. It wasn't shot on film and the subject matter was still a little taboo. So, yeah, I mean, I think that, I think it did. It did make it a little, little rockier right after the, the release than I had anticipated. I, th- I thought I was going to get shot out of a cannon. And no. <laughs> <laughs> well, horror as a genre by itself is always, I always think it's kind of a tricky genre because in some ways it's easy to make a horror film and people expect it to do well at the box office and it can get you some notoriety. But a lot of people don't want to stay in the genre. And then some right. people feel like they get tainted by it. Mm-hmm. I mean, I love the genre, and I I really admire I the filmmakers like David Cronenberg and Clive Barker, oh filmmakers God. who yeah. stay in the genre and expand it. I love horror, and I do not regret. I mean, I I still play around in it. I still hope to make more horror films. You know, there was a whole decade where we were kind of stuck in the the saw and the torture porn and all of that. I don't respond to that at all. I don't think it has a thought in its head. But you know, the Cronenbergs. I don't know that that's necessarily scary stuff, but it is it is horror commentary, I guess, and I love that. I like the the smart, challenging types of horror and and the visuals and, that you can put with it, and the kinds of stories you can tell. They can be so outlandish and yet disturbing and moving in in ways you don't expect. I love that. Mm-hmm. So I don't I don't regret doing horror at all. Yeah, I, I had a chance to interview Cronenberg and what he. <laughs> well, and the thing that he said that always struck me because I, I I think his films are in the horror genre. They're not conventional yes. horror by any means, and what he gets to is far more disturbing than what most mainstream horror does. But yes. he, the comment he made, he says, "I'm not interested in making comfortable cinema." Mm-hmm. And that seems to sum up his films. It's like they just, they're disquieting and they're disturbing and they're uncomfortable and they get to something that, that's really kind of core to what yeah. horror is but about. You, just, you don't even know that they're in you. <laughs> <laughs> Love that. Love that. What other horror filmmakers ha- do you admire or do you like? Well, like I mentioned before, Brian De Palma. I grew up with De Palma. My mother is a huge Brian De Palma fan. I was scared to death of Texas Chainsaw Massacre, even seeing it. I saw like the first three minutes of it and turned it off and I couldn't watch it, you know, for probably 15 years. I have grown to appreciate that movie quite a lot. I actually was at a friend's house on Valentine's Day several years ago and Toby Hooper showed up to this this party of like 14 gay guys with a new print of Texas Chainsaw Massacre and screened it for us. But what I remember vividly at the beginning of it, he said, I shot this to be a comedy. And it, I watched it as though it were a comedy and it completely changed my experience. I loved it. It was so much fun. Alien is my favorite horror film. I had to uh, go into therapy after seeing that movie. <laughs> You know, there there's some recent horror films that I've appreciated. It follows. I really enjoyed uh, the Babadook. 
but I don't know that those directors have, you know, enough under their belts to say, you know, this is a horror film director. But there you go. So it's a genre that you are, you would like to return to. Do you have any, like, concrete ideas? Would you... Mainly, I have been in my head. Yes, I do have one concrete idea that I've been fleshing out for, I don't know, a couple of years. I was asked to do it like a, a gay horror comic book at one point. And I came up with something that has never left me. And I've been retooling that. Usually when I think about horror, I think of it in the shorts form because there is something very specific that I want to address. Yeah, I mean, I've got some ideas for that too. But I mean, I'm not out there pitching horror currently. I've been trying to uh, do more mm, easier to sell thriller stuff. You mentioned that if you were making Hellbent now, it would be a different film. Yeah. What kind of things would you change if you were to make it? If somebody came to you and said, let's do a remake of Hellbent tomorrow, uh-huh. what kind of things, how would you kind of re-envision it for today? I would develop the killer more, not necessarily give him a backstory and a horrible scene with his mother or anything like that. But you know, one of the complaints I heard most frequently was we don't really understand anything about the killer. So I don't, you know, I don't ever want us to know his name or anything, but I would develop him more so that you sort of understood his motivations. Hellbent was conceived as being more than one film, at least in my mind. And we talked about doing a sequel for a while. But, uh, and so I think I made the rookie mistake of holding on to too much to reveal in the, in the second film. And then, of course, the second film never came. I'd also make it more sexual. Um, I wouldn't shy away from that. I think that now that we are, you know, the, the apps, the dating apps, and that aspect of, you know, anonymous meeting, and that is sort of uh, uh, permeates our gay culture, I would involve that more, the, the willingness to be riskier. Um, we didn't have that when I made Hellbent. You know, we didn't even have iPhones yet. So, I mean, I think that would be an, an interesting element to bring in. Talking about sex again, you know, where uh, PrEP has now freed us from some concerns, but, you know, there are other things that we choose to uh, not look at when we're having sex with strangers. I'd probably incorporate a lot more of that. Um, I'd be more willing to point to some of our darker impulses than I was when I wrote Hellbent. Mm-hmm. And I wanted this to all be angels. <laughs> <laughs> Do you think that there are enough films or filmmakers at this point to have kind of a subgenre of gay horror films? I go back and forth on what is gay horror. I remember being asked a lot when Hellbent came out, what did I think about gay horror? And when I was writing it, I wasn't certain that there was gay horror because everything that was horrifying and terrible to gays was also to uh, straight people, you know, being chased, being hacked up, watching your lover get killed. That's all terrible stuff. But now I, I think that, that it's, it's, for me, it's more queer horror. It takes it out of uh, sexual necessarily about being homosexual or lesbian or whatnot and just turns it into being somehow radically different from what you expect of yourself or what your peers are or 
what other people expect of you. That's what I think of when I think of gay horror now. Are there enough people to do it? I don't know. <laughs> you tell me. <laughs> <laughs> There's definitely more than there has been. So that's Good. promising. Yeah. I mean, I'm glad that filmmakers have access to, you know, making these things. Yeah, I don't know. I mean, I would I would love to see what that looks like because I I wrestle with those questions. You know, what is the, the gay horror, the queer horror? What does that mean to people now? Well, and I've seen a few films made by gay filmmakers where it feels like on a certain level there's an anger that they have that they against a lot of the prejudice that they've dealt with and they mm-hmm. use the horror genre to like depict a character who initially seems like a, maybe a stereotypical weak gay character you know a stereotype by like a, a, a white male straight guy and that character turns on those people and proves to be the dangerous one you know you think like these redneck guys who were picking on him Right. are the ones that are dangerous. And then there's a turn and it's right. suddenly like, oh, no, the guy you're picking on is actually a demon and he's going to devour you. And so yeah. next time it's you a... you think about, you know, stereotyping us like that, think twice, kind of. So it, it seems like right. horror is taking an interesting, is offering some interesting opportunities to kind of turn stereotypes around and, and you know, say like we're – Saying like instead of the the gay character being the victim or being the one that's put through a lot, it, it, that that character turns around to be the one that that right. is the strong well, one. What we fantasize about when we're in high school, right? <laughs> and we're feeling pushed into the corner, like, well, only I were the superhero or the you know the one to watch out for. I totally understand that impulse. That's what what your uh, what the shorts are. There's one being expressed. Yeah, there was one short, and I also I'm on a selection committee for a horror film festival here in San Diego, Horrible Imaginings. So Look at you, I, I, I do love the genre. I, I've always felt it's a bit maligned, you know. And yeah, it's it is it's a freeing genre. And it's funny because working on a horror film festival, I have people tell me all the time, like, oh, you know, I, I I'm not really into horror, and I said, I think you'd be really surprised by how broad that genre is and like you can't saying you don't like horror is you know saying you just don't like movies because yeah really i mean it is you know essentially it's it's all just it's all metaphor Mm -hmm. you know it's that that's the the, it's you know poetic (laughs) that's what i loved about it you mentioned films like it follows and the babadook Are, are those kind of the recent examples of the genre that you look to as kind of hopeful for what the future of the genre is for? Yeah. Yeah, I do. You know, there's part of me that is just relieved that we're moving away from, you know, the torture porn, which I I just couldn't stomach horror for a long time. And I felt like it was, you know, so so much, so cynical. (laughs) Whereas, you know, the, the Babadook and it follows probably the Babadook more you know, they were playing with ideas and the situations were simply horrifying. Plus the acting was really good in both of those, I thought. We're moving into areas that felt really types of fears that were relatable and personal. I don't get very fearful on these kind of cataclysmic movies. <laughs> it's just too big to, to comprehend the world, you know, falling into the sun or whatnot. 
Um, Get Out, too. I loved, loved Get Out. That was another one where, I mean, it's not terrifying. I don't necessarily need to be there terrified, but it, I was so uncomfortable having been at those parties thinking, oh, God, we're awful. <laughs> Um, and just how clever it was. Yes. Well, thank you very much, and, and thank you for making Hellbent and kind of changing that horror landscape just a little bit. Well, uh, you are very welcome. <laughs> uh, great talking with you. That was Hellbent director Paul Etheridge. Hellbent screens October 18th with Nightmare on Elm Street 2, Freddy's Revenge at Landmark's Hillcrest Cinemas. If you enjoyed this episode, please leave a review on iTunes to help boost the profile of Cinema Junkie so others can find it. You can also tell a friend to listen because a personal recommendation is the best way to get people to listen. You can also look back through the archives for podcasts about a pair of dark gay thrillers, Drown and Downriver, both from Australia. Thanks for listening to another episode of listener-supported KPBS Cinema Junkie podcast. Till our next film fix, I'm Beth Accomando, your resident cinema junkie. KPBS On Demand is supported by UC San Diego, offering the online Master of Data Science program, shaping the next generation of data-driven problem solvers. Learn more about the online Master of Data Science program from UC San Diego at omds.ucsd.edu.